So you know, Shane, um, Carl was telling me before the service, the first service, that several years ago, maybe decades ago now, they had a you guys had a guest preacher preach on the book of Ruth, and he actually read the entire book of Ruth before he preached. So I don't feel so bad giving you, uh, giving you 21 verses of scripture to read. Well, anyway, we're continuing in the book of uh, in the book of Luke, where we've been looking at the first four. We're looking at the first four chapters in the book of Luke, entitling it "The Coming of the King." That's our series title. While Jeff is out on sabbatical next week, we're going to take a quick break from this sermon series as we're welcoming a guest speaker, Mike Glodo, professor at RTS Orlando, is going to be coming up to issue communion, and he's going to be preaching. And then we'll continue the week after that with our sermon series uh, in the book of Luke, the coming of the king. Today, uh, don't be confused or misled. The the sermon title is Our New Name, but I was asked this week, this doesn't mean that Spruce Creek is changing its name. So uh, despite what the sermon title says, we're not changing our name at Spruce Creek. It's remaining the same. It's just the name of the sermon. And hopefully it'll be clear why we're naming it, uh, why I'm entitling it Our New Name throughout the sermon. Anyway, uh, last week we looked at Mary and Elizabeth's encounter together. We looked at that beautiful poetic text that flows out of that, known as the Magnificat, the text traditionally known as the Magnificat. And today we're just continuing in the narrative, and we're looking specifically today at the birth of John, and then that text, that poetic text that flows out of that, traditionally known as the Benedictus. So the text today is Luke 1, 57 through 80. And please follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV. The text is printed in your bulletin. It's on the screen. And of course, it's also in your Bibles. So please follow along as I read. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies." And from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways." to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is indeed living and active, and that you speak to us through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you know, you know each of us, you know each of us even better than we know ourselves, and you know the condition of every heart in this room today. We pray that through your word, which is able to accomplish, as you tell us, what you set it out to accomplish, we ask that you would encourage the downhearted, that you would convict the prideful, that all of us would walk away knowing that you are a good and gracious God, that we are your children in Christ, that you love us, and that you are worthy of all that we have to bring before you. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, about five years ago, Lori and I, my wife Lori and I, had the chance to take a week-long trip out to the grand city of Vancouver, Canada. You see, the Pacific Northwest has always had that sort of aesthetic or, might I say, magical appeal to us. And as we watched the 2010 Olympic Winter Games in Vancouver, Canada, it further nurtured this desire to want to go and explore this city that we had seen and that we'd read so much about. So during our first year of marriage, we were married in 2010, we were able to save money, and then for our one-year anniversary, we took our trip out to Vancouver, Canada. So we hopped on the plane at Orlando, took a few-hour trip, a few hours plane ride out to the city of Seattle. We actually flew into Seattle, Washington first because it was, it was cheaper, and we also wanted to explore Seattle. So we stayed the first night in Seattle, Washington, and then the next morning, we took a bus to Vancouver, Canada. Vancouver is about two and a half hours north of Seattle. And that is a bus ride that I don't think I'll ever forget. <laughs> As we traveled north, and, and that drive, it's an absolutely beautiful drive up I-5, if you've ever been there before. As we, as, we, uh, as we drove up north on I-5, we took in the Cascade Mountain Range that was all around us, those beautiful mountains towering above us all around. We took in the sea of wildflowers that were planted all along the highway. And as we got closer to the city, I remember like a little boy just getting really eager and antsy, wanting to get the first glimpse of the city that I could. So I'm stretching my neck, trying to look out all of the windows of the bus, trying to get the first glimpse of this city that we had waited so long to see, so long to explore, the city that we had seen on TV during the Olympic Winter Games. And then finally, the bus popped over the crest of a hill, and out in the distance I saw it, the city of Vancouver. The morning fog that was, that's so indicative of cities in the Pacific Northwest was just beginning to burn off for the morning, and the sun was glistening off the skyscrapers in the distance, and the city was nestled in between all of these towering snow-capped mountains. Even in the middle of July, snow-capped mountains were all around the city. Even though we had seen this city on TV during the Olympics, we've watched documentaries months prior to arriving. We looked at many pictures of the adventures we would be taking. All of these experiences prior to our arrival in Vancouver paled in comparison to the real deal. Nothing in the previous couple, year, couple years where we were looking forward to visiting the city could have prepared us to take in the grandeur and the beauty of what awaited us. And in a sense, Lori and I knew what we were getting into. You know, we had researched the city meticulously. We knew how to get to our hotel. We knew what restaurants we wanted to visit. We knew where, where we wanted to go exploring. We knew how to do all of these things, but we didn't really know the city. We couldn't have known the city until we arrived 
and took it all in, until we arrived and took in the real deal that was in front of us. Well, friends, just as I don't think anything could have really prepared Lori and I for the grand city of Vancouver, I encourage you to visit if you ever get a chance, just as nothing could have really experienced or prepared us for this experience, I think something similar can be said in our text this morning of these neighbors and relatives that we meet in one in verse or in verse 58 of chapter one. Just after our text opens this morning, we meet these neighbors and relatives. Now, these neighbors and relatives, whoever they are, had apparently heard that Elizabeth had given birth to a son, which was incredible news given, as we learned all the way back in chapter 1, verse 7, that Elizabeth was barren, and both she and Zechariah were, quote, advanced in years. No doubt, perhaps this Jewish community, these neighbors and relatives, when they heard that Elizabeth had actually given birth to a son, perhaps they put this incredible birth on par with the births that they knew from Scripture, from, their old, from the Old Testament Scriptures. Perhaps they saw in John's birth a parallel to the birth of Isaac, as we learn from Genesis 21, who was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Or perhaps they drew a parallel to the birth of Samuel, to Hannah and Elkanah in 1 Samuel 1, who, as we learn in that text, Hannah had been barren for many years. Moreover, being a Jewish community, these neighbors and relatives, it's very likely that they would have also been well acquainted with the promises of God in their scriptures in the Old Testament. Maybe they knew that the promise of a new covenant was on its way from Jeremiah 31. Or maybe they knew that a prophet like Elijah was set to come from a text like Malachi 4. Now, although it's impossible to say what these neighbors and relatives, we don't really know much about them, it's impossible to say what they knew and what they didn't know, as a Jewish community, it's very likely that they knew these general promises in the scriptures. And yet, despite being well acquainted with the scriptures, despite being well acquainted with these promises and others like them, these neighbors and relatives are encountering in our text this morning the real deal, so to speak. And in a very real sense, nothing could have really prepared them for what was about to take shape. God was on the move once again, speaking to Israel after 400 years of silence. We learn Malachi ends, and then there's 400 years before any prophetic word is heard in Israel. God is on the move, speaking to Israel after 400 years of silence. And yet, the neighbors and relatives are dumbfounded by the reality of what they're experiencing in our text. Well, friends, although we stand on the other side of the cross, even though we see clearly that which was seen dimly at this point in redemptive history, even though we look back on the real deal, so to speak, whereas these saints looked forward to the real deal, I think this text still speaks to us this morning. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us in this text this morning. And what I want us to see from this text this morning is that when God works for his people, when he works for his people preeminently so in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, his people, are given, one, a new name, we're given a calling to serve, and we're given hope. And so first, the gospel gives us a new name. Now let's take a look at the text again, specifically this encounter between Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the neighbors and relatives. I just want to continue to reorient us to the text, and so let me just read again this encounter in verses 57 through 66, where we read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. 
And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But the mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now culturally, a newborn Jewish child, such as John, would have been circumcised on the eighth day. You know, circumcision, as we learn from you know, Genesis 17 and other texts, was the mark of being included in the covenant. It was the mark of being included in the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, that's replaced now with baptism, we, we believe. And coinciding with this child's circumcision, he or she would be given a new name. So, There's really nothing abnormal about the context here, about what's going on. Zechariah and Elizabeth, simply put, are being a faithful Jewish mom and dad, and the neighbors and relatives and the people in the hill country of Judea are being real supportive neighbors in their celebratory praise. But very quickly, as we read in the text, confusion and tension surfaces over the child's name. And then the scene concludes a few verses later, with the neighbors and relatives and the people throughout the hill country wondering, meditating, just what this child would be. And what we find is that within the span of just a few verses, these neighbors and relatives are taken on a roller coaster ride of three unexpected twists and turns. First, the neighbors and relatives are taken aback when Elizabeth says that this child would be named John, because the text tells us none of their relatives is called John. Commentators tell us that Culturally speaking, it would have been normal for a child to be named either after the father or the grandfather. So the name John is quite strange. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't fit the customary norm of the Jewish culture. But it's the name that Zechariah and Elizabeth are compelled to use because it's the name that God has given to this child, as we learned all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, when Zechariah is in the temple and the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he tells him that you and your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son and that son will be called John, right? So they're compelled to use the name John because that's the name that God has given to this child. Well, second, the neighbors and relatives then turn to the father, Zechariah, just to check with him. You know, this, this name from the mouth of Elizabeth must have been so far out there, so abnormal, that they just have to check, just to make sure that Elizabeth hasn't lost her mind here. Now remember, Zechariah was struck with muteness. Again, harking back to that text, Luke 1, verses 5 through 25, that encounter between Zechariah and the angel Gabriel in the temple, we learn there that because Zechariah uh, disbelieved, he didn't believe the angel Gabriel's words, he was struck with muteness. We learned back in 120. And now we see the neighbors and relatives in our text this morning making signs, going out of their way to communicate with him by any means possible just to get to the bottom of what in the world is going on here. 
Now, a quick note or a quick factoid, it's likely that Zechariah was both mute and deaf in the passage. It wouldn't really make sense for the neighbors and relatives to be signing to him if he could also hear, if he wasn't also deaf. And the word used of his muteness all the way back in Luke one twenty, that encounter in the temple, often refers to both being mute and deaf. Uh, But nevertheless, even in Zachariah's condition, which is probably a worse condition than just being mute, the neighbors and relatives still turn to him. They, they, They have to find some way to get to the bottom of what's going on. And to their surprise, Zachariah effectively gives two thumbs up. He agrees this child is to be named John. And then the third twist in this passage. After Zechariah confirms that his name would be John, after he writes on this tablet, yes, his name is John, he speaks. The nine months of silence were in a moment, and one moment ended. And although this is a miraculous event in and of itself, that somebody who was mute and presumably also deaf now speaks and is able to hear, presumably, this miracle serves primarily to further attest that this child would indeed be named John. This we could say, this miracle we could say, is the divine stamp of approval on top of Zechariah and Elizabeth's persistence for their neighbors and relatives to witness. So they're persisting that, yes, this child is named John, and then this miracle comes, and it's as if God is saying, yep, they're right, his name is indeed John. And as this encounter at the naming ceremony ends, we learn that many others in the hill country of Judea have heard about what took place. And this section ends with a question for us to meditate on, too. What, then, will this child be? But as we continue through this passage and through the poetic text traditionally known as the Benedictus, which flows out of this encounter, as we'll see shortly, even though this child is given a unique name, it's given a unique name named John, And the setting of this passage is a celebration over the new life of this child, John. The question on the lips of the community, the question on the lips of those in the hill country of Judea, indicates that they realize this child would be significant because of a certain role he would play, although they weren't quite sure what this role would be. In other words, the question on the mouth of the people in the hill country of Judea is not, who will this child be? in the sense of, wonder what John's personality is going to be like. What are his likes? What are his dislikes? What's his hair color going to look like? It's not a question of necessarily about the person of John. The question is, what will this child be? And that's an important distinction, because the focus is on what John's role will be in the plan of God. And as we'll find soon, even as soon as the Benedictus, and then even more so in Luke 3, which... Uh, at this pace, we won't get to until July, uh, when John's ministry and action take center stage, John's role, we'll find, is a self-effacing role. His role is to point God's people to the Messiah. His role is to point God's people to Jesus Christ. Now, the astounding thing in this interaction between characters is that the people are beginning to realize that God is on the move in this child, and it's in the name that he is given And in the sign, the miracle that attests to this name, which signaled to the neighbors and relatives in a very incipient form that God is on the move after 400 years of silence. What's in a name, we might ask? Well, apparently a whole lot. This name signals something about God's climactic work is on the horizon. Well, friends, 
even though we stand on the other side of the horizon. Or to echo Zechariah's language from the text traditionally known as the Benedictus, where he writes, we'll talk about this very shortly, the sunrise has already visited us on high in Jesus Christ. Yet as Christians, we too, like John, are given a new name or a new identity. And while our actual names don't change, my name is Andrew, and as far as I can tell, I'm going to continue to be called Andrew for the remainder of my life. As Christians, the New Testament repeatedly affirms time and time again that as Christians, we have a new identity. We have a new name. And this name, we could say, goes by the phrase, in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is often used by the Apostle Paul in his many epistles, those 13 letters in the middle of the New Testament that comprise quite a bit of the New Testament. And it's used by the Apostle Paul to signify what theologians refer to as our union with Christ. As Christians, we've been united to Christ. When we become Christians, we've been united to Christ. And as a result, the very bedrock of who we are Our very identity becomes defined, shaped, and molded by this relationship, this unique relationship that we have with him. Now, this doesn't mean that our individuality or our unique personalities or our unique giftedness is somehow swallowed up or or relativized in this relationship, but it does set our individuality in its appropriate context. And this is important. Individuality, or the autonomous self today, is so relentlessly pursued because it's thought that this is the way to live in true freedom. That in order to find ourselves, we have to probe deeper and deeper into ourselves, to undergo extreme introspection, and that we have to satisfy every single desire that rears its head in order for us to really know ourselves. But in fact, friends, the Bible calls that slavery, not freedom. It's only in Christ where we're truly free to be individuals and to live the authentic life because it's only in Christ that we live without fear. It's only in Christ where our minds and hearts are renewed to live according to our design, according to our blueprint of who we were created to be. It's only in Christ that these realities take shape. And because of this new identity or this new metaphorical name in Christ, we're no longer defined primarily by our likes or dislikes, even though we have likes and dislikes. We're no longer defined by our hobbies or jobs, nor are we defined primarily by our sexuality. What primarily defines us is a relationship, a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. And this relationship with this person, Jesus Christ, molds us and shapes us and affects everything about us. I like what a retired pastor, Scotty Smith, Jeff's quoted him a few times in the past, has to say on this whole concept. Scotty Smith writes this. He writes, often, our most formative name isn't the one on our birth certificate. Some of us have been branded with names that have shamed and wounded us deeply, and some of us have greatly harmed others by the things we have called them. All of us stand in need of God's mercy and grace, which he readily and freely gives, but it is enough that he looks at us today and addresses each of us as mine, beloved, and desired. I am so grateful by the power of the gospel to rename, renew, and release us from old destructive labels, the ones others have given us, and the ones we have given ourselves. Friends, in the gospel, our new names, metaphorically speaking, define us as beloved children, defines us as heirs according to the promise, and it defines us as righteous saints. And this new name calls us 
to cultivate virtue out of that new identity, out of who we are in Christ. And just like the neighbors and the relatives in our text this morning, they meditated over the name John, we too are called to meditate on our new names. We're called to meditate on our new identity and what it means to be in Christ, and then to inject this truth into our shame, into our disappointment, into our hopelessness, and so forth. And like John, one thing we'll discover about our new name when we really probe and meditate and who we are in Christ and what it really means to be in Christ, when we really meditate on that, what we'll find is that by virtue of who we are, we're propelled outward to service. This leads to our second point. Second, the gospel gives us a calling to serve. Now, this entire narrative section that we've been looking at today with the uh, birth of John and then the Benedictus that flows from this text of the birth of John, it parallels the text we looked at last week in, in a pretty broad way. Just as Mary and Elizabeth's interaction then led to an overflow of praise, so too John's birth leads to an overflow of praise by Zechariah. In many ways, these songs are similar. And like Mary's song, this poetic song of the Benedictus can be divided into two parts with the first part focusing on God's promises for his people. So if you're looking at the text right now, chapter 1, verses 68 through 75, focus on God's promises for his people, and then that narrows down in verses 76 through 79 to what God will do specifically through John. So let's take first, let's take a look at the first part of the Benedictus, uh, chapter 1, verses 68 through 75. And again, let me read again from that text just to continuously reorient ourselves to the scriptures. John and, and, the father, uh, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This overflow of prophet, this overflow of prophetic praise, we might say, comes on the heels of the neighbors and relatives asking, again, that crucial question, what then will this child be? And in this sense, the Benedictus serves as the answer to this question. What in the world is going on through this birth, the birth of this child named John? The Benedictus is Zachariah's attempt, so to speak, at removing the veil it's his attempt at showing us what indeed God is up to. And what we find as we explore the many facets, the twists and turns of the Benedictus, what we see are a multiplicity of promises from our God that are finally being answered in redemptive history. Specifically, if we could sum up all of these promises into one, salvation has come at last to God's people in and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, the text tells us that God in the Messiah, as verses, verse 69 says, has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, the imagery here, commentators note, is one of an ox with horns that are powerful enough to drive away and defeat one's enemies, while at the same time, beautifully ornamented, protecting 
all of the beneficiaries of its power. And this is what God does for his people in Christ. He captivates us by his might, his power to save, and yet at the same time secures us by his power. And we could go on and on, tracing the contours of every one of these promises that we read in the Benedictus. But importantly, all of these promises, all together collectively, they have a goal in mind. There's one specific goal in mind that the text tells us in in, uh, verse 74, and that is that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, the church being delivered from the hand of its enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The goal of our salvation, the goal of our new name, the goal of our new identity, the goal of being in Christ as new creatures, is that we might serve. So often we talk about salvation in terms of what we're saved from, right? We talk about uh, being saved from sin, being saved from death, or to echo Paul's language, being saved from the curse of the law. Those things are certainly true, and they're magnificent truths that we're saved from all of these things, and we could go on and on talking about what we're saved from. But This text also tells us that we're saved for something, that there's a purpose, there's a goal for our salvation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians being one of the letters of Paul that comes later in the New Testament, Paul labels this something that we're saved for, the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The point here is that God in Christ, he first reconciled us, you and I, to himself in Jesus Christ. And then he gave his church, out of that, the ministry of reconciliation. In that text, he calls his church, he uses the language that we are ambassadors for Christ as we appeal to one another in the gospel to be reconciled to God. In other words, the church, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, and because of that, we're propelled outward on mission. The reconciliation mission of God in Christ Jesus, in a derivative sense, in a small sense, becomes our mission as his people too. Now, there are a multiplicity of ways that each of us can participate and does do participate in this mission. But simply put, if you're a Christian, you've been given unique God-honoring spiritual gifts to serve Christ in the context of the church, in the context of the body. And these gifts are also utilized as we're propelled outward into the world on mission, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into the many places that we do life. We're propelled outward on missions, and we're called to live as salt of the earth and as a light to the nations as the church scatters abroad and goes to the darkest recesses of the world and even the darkest resources of Port Orange or of Daytona Beach or of Ormond. Wherever we're called, we're called to be salt of the earth and a light to the nations. So first of all, do you know your gifts? Maybe you're in a place as a Christian where you wonder, do I really have anything valuable to offer to this body? And if that's the question you're asking, let me answer with a resounding yes, you do. You have something incredibly valued to offer as a Christian because you've been equipped with gifts to serve those that you're sitting around even right now. And then second, the second question to ask is, am I serving according to my giftedness? 
We haven't been bought with a price. We haven't been united to Christ so that we can get or receive. We do get and we do receive, and we receive amazing things from our God and Father. But at the same time, we give or we get so that we can serve, so that we can be propelled outward into service. And while we're given the weighty task of being ambassadors for the gospel, I mean, think of that. Think of what, the, what a weighty task that is in and of itself. If, we were, if that were only all, all, all or nothing up to us to do, think of the weighty task that would be. Fortunately, it's not all up to us to do. But we're also promised that by virtue of our new name, we serve without fear. Even as we're called to engage the world with the gospel, even as we're called to be ambassadors of the gospel wherever it is that we're called, we're also given the promise that we can serve without fear. Simply put, we serve without fear because in Christ we have nothing to prove. We're not trying to strive for a place at the dinner table. No, we've already been invited to the banquet to feast. Nor are we orphans fighting over scraps. No, we're children. We're sons and daughters of the king. This is who we are in Christ. And by virtue of who we are in Christ, we're propelled outward to serve out of this identity, not for this new identity, but out of this new identity. And this leads to our final point. Third, the gospel renews our hope. And I'll be short here. Let's take a look, though, first at the, at the second half of the Benedictus. We read the first half. I just want to reorient us again to the text, to the second half of the Benedictus. Let's look at verses 76 through 79, where we read, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, although, again, this narrative is centered on the context of John's birth, at its heart, this narrative points us to the one John came into the world to point to. It points us first and foremost to Jesus Christ. This text is all about Jesus Christ. Even though John takes center stage in a sense, it's all about Jesus Christ. Zechariah and Elizabeth's determination on naming this child John leads the neighbors and relatives to ask, what will this child be? As we've already mentioned in this sermon, the very question isn't an inquiry into personality or hair color or any other characteristic about this child, John. It's a question about his role. And in the second half of the Benedictus, we're told explicitly that John's role is a preparatory role, right? He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John's role is to prepare the people, prepare Israel for the Messiah's arrival, to prepare them for Jesus Christ, the hope of God's people even. Isn't it? It's not in what John will accomplish, although we'll learn, especially when we get to Luke 3, which might, again might be July, but stay tuned. When we get to Luke chapter 3, we'll see this even more, that John's role is a self-effacing role. It's an important role, but at the same time, it's a self-effacing role. It's not meant to point other, it's not meant to point us to him, it's meant to point us to Jesus Christ. Hope is found, as the Benedictus tells us, in that God has visited his people in the Messiah. It's found in that sunrise, this beautiful imagery that's employed here in the Benedictus in verse 78, that the sunrise has visited God's people from on high. I like what R. Kent Hughes, a commentator on Luke, 
to whom I'm indebted. I'm, I like how he really unpacks this imagery of the sunrise visiting us on high. So let me just read you real briefly what he writes on this. He writes about one verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 78. Israel is portrayed here as a caravan that has lost its way and has been overtaken by night. It is stranded in utter darkness in a lonely, howling, expansive wilderness. The sky is lowering and there is no starlight. This is a moving picture of lethargy, oppressive, dark torpor, entropy, despair, hopelessness. But then a faint change is seen in the east. The sky is no longer black, but blue. Their eyes move to the west, and in the darkness, forms take shape. At first, metallic and dull, then comes a wisp of color. As their eyes switch back to the east, the cobalt blue turns to royal blue, and a long line of pink rims the horizon. The sun is up. They are quickly on their feet, exchanging smiles, rubbing hands, and beginning to cheer. John's birth signals an end to darkness. It signals an end to 400 years of prophetic silence. It signals that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is on his way. This is the hope for God's people who are sitting in darkness, that God would once again visit his people, bringing redemption. And friends, our hope the hope of his church right now in these last days as beneficiaries of Jesus's work who right now is reigning and ruling at the father's right hand in glory is that God would visit his people again. That is our hope that we cling to. Just as the sunrise has visited us in Jesus Christ, removing us from the shadow of death as we read in 1 verse 79, we await the finale to the grand act of redemption when Christ visits his people again to take away all traces of sin and death. The fact that God broke through darkness in Jesus Christ to answer his people gives us steadfast assurance that we worship, we serve a God who's true to his promises. He's true to his word, and he will, as Luke indicates, especially in this first chapter, as we've highlighted every single week, God is a God who performs his word. He answers every single one of his promises, and every single one of his promises, as Paul tells us, is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion, then, this is a text that foreshadows for us the coming of Christ in redemptive history. Even though the context is John's birth, it's still all about Christ. And just as John's name was a testimony to the work of Christ on the horizon, our metaphorical new names, our names as those in Christ, is a testament to the work of Christ in the past, what he's accomplished. It's a testament of Christ in the present as he's reigning and ruling, and it's a testament uh, to Christ of what he will do in the future, what he will accomplish. And as we're propelled outward into, onto mission in our neighborhoods and our workplaces, wherever we're called, our names are a testament to the world over what God accomplished and that he is king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many promises in Christ that we, your people who have been bought with a price, have been secured in union with Christ by, by no works of our own, but by, solely by the blood of Christ, we've been united in fellowship with you. And that's the very reason we can even come and pray to you today. The very reason we can have fellowship with you isn't because of anything we've done, but it's because that Christ has come, that he, the, the sunrise has visited us from on high. And Father, we know that you are a God who's faithful to his promises. Every single promise is yes and amen in Jesus. 
and we ask that you would meet all of us in that, in those promises, that as we deal with despair, hopelessness, or whatever else, that we would remember that you are a God who is faithful to his promises, who loves us, and whose love is demonstrated preeminently in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.